I am admitting Professor Emma Crewe to the meeting. Aye! This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. Do you want to introduce the show? No. Okay. In that case, I will. <laughs> You're listening to Imperial Voice. This is in our city. I'm William Heath. And I'm Tessie Onilere from Lagos. And our guests today, we're completely delighted. It's Professor Emma Crewe. She's Professor of Social Anthropology at the School of Oriental and African Studies, which we call SOAS. But she also is a new friend of Fairfield House with a special connection. Emma, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And where are you speaking to us from? I'm in London. That is my identity. I am not English. I'm not British. I am a Londoner. I don't always live here, but that's where my heart is. And I'm, I, I love London, partly because it feels so connected to the rest of the world. In a tiny way, we're trying to replicate that in Bath, but I completely get what you're saying. So we've got Tosin in Lagos. And Tosin, it's a delight to have you back on the show. It was a bit strange doing a show without you because of the power cuts and stuff. I can tell you, I really missed being part of the show. And and I'm trying to get um, start another show here in Nigeria. So, uh, yeah, we'll see where what happens. Emma, it's it's absolutely delightful to have you here and... Uh, Speaking to you sort of takes me back on a bit of a nostalgic trip. Uh, yeah, being in London, being at SOAS, it, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Oh, great. Well, SOAS is a special place, but we can, we can come to that in a bit. I was brought up in London and I was always fascinated by SOAS. And I remember as a teenager thinking that would be the best university in the world because because it's connected to the rest of the world. So you got your PhD at Edinburgh. What was that in? So I studied social anthropology because I was always very, very nosy about people. And and the beauty of the subject social anthropology, which is very different from physical anthropology, which is more more of the study of uh, evolution and um, sort of bones and things like that. But social anthropology is really an excuse to be intensely curious about others. It's like high-grade gossip. You're looking at why people get on, why they don't get on, what they fight about, who they marry or or don't marry, um, what they eat, uh, what they believe, um, how they do politics is what really fascinates me. So I suppose I'm really a political anthropologist. So 
from from the get-go I I two two things about the way I do anthropology one is I I just see politics everywhere I'm completely fascinated by politics and for me it's sort of it's social relationships with the dial turned up so it's kind of humans at their best and at their worst if you want even more intense then you look at what happens in in war situations but but politics for me is sort of non-violent intense humanity and I've always loved it so when I did my PhD I I I was looking at international development so I I went off to live in Sri Lanka and I was supposed to look at the impact um, of a development project on communities in Sri Lanka but I kind of flipped it around and thought yeah but what's the impact of these communities on on development and actually what's the sort of configuration of all these different groups and and what are they all getting out of it? And really, what is the politics of it? What what is this political domain with these people from Europe thinking that they're going to help people, but actually very often interfering in a in a extremely neo-colonial way as if they're governing another place without really, in my view, seeking the consent that they should or being accountable for what they do. So I'm afraid quite quickly I developed a really critical view of international development encounters, but including of myself, because my PhD was a bit unusual because I I became a development worker because I wanted to do what we call participant observation in a really genuine way. Was that participative observation? Exactly. exactly. Okay, so, so, so you're you're sort of taking part in a development process and being aware and writing about it and researching it as you do it. Exactly. So that's the sort of gold standard anthropological way of doing research. If you can, you genuinely participate as one of the actors. That can be really difficult if you're studying prisons and you don't want to go to prison or if you're later I studied politicians and didn't want to be one. But but as a development worker, I really could have a look um, at what not only what people talked about, but actually what it feels like to be a development worker and, and to be self-critical. So if you're very critical of others, I think it's a lot fairer in a way if you, in, you turn the critique upon yourself. So in a way, it was easier to write um, uh, about the problems that are caused in international development uh, because I was one of them, one of the, one of the people causing the problems. It, it, it's really kind of exciting um, listening to you because you know I I can um, totally empathize Uh, we lived in Kenya for a a number of years and we had quite a a big group of friends who were part of the um, NGO um, uh, body to speak and and it was I I actually found it very I, I thought that quite often you know, they they came in with preconceived notions and wanted to impose their goodness, their wisdom on local communities. And quite often, and so much more, it seemed to me, in salaries and benefits than was actually kind of going into the project or almost comparable. It seemed a, a kind of very... Um, uh, a sophisticated way of paying off various, you know, developed communities rather than actually to the benefit of the locals. 
and a way also of uh, assuaging people's conscience for all uh, for a lot of um, international negative policies. If you agree with that at all? I completely agree with everything you've said. It chimes in the most painful way. I went in myself with some post-colonial guilt. My ancestors were actually involved in British colonialism. So I thought I was going to go and be incredibly helpful. But the first um, major uh, project I was involved with was actually in Western Kenya, around Kasumu. And I realised quite quickly that the the various organisations were involved. So it was led by a Kenyan NGO, but it was sort of backed up by an INGO from the UK. And they wanted to offer these women's groups training in making a new product and then selling it. And of course, the women's group said, yes, all this is all really interesting. We're very interested in training. They, you know, they were incredibly savvy. They knew where there's a development project, you know, there's funding coming in, there's opportunity. But totally, it wasn't what they wanted at all. They didn't want to be trained in this. What they actually wanted to do was trade maize. So they sort of said very politely, actually, what we'd really like is some loans and credit, if please. But but the development agencies, including me, said, oh, I'm really sorry, but that's not on offer. We've got funding to do this, you know, this kind of energy program, developing these fuel efficient stoves. And what was fascinating was that the, the NGO, meantime, the Kenyan NGO, had their own agenda. They wanted to plant trees. So when the wow. foreigners weren't looking, they all did their own thing. The NGO planted trees yeah. and the women traded maize. But then there was this amazing performative ritual that had to happen when, for example, I came along and and had to do an evaluation. And, you know, I fell in love with these people. I had some of the best times kind of hanging out with these women's groups and talking about all th- all kinds of things, family life and Christianity and all sorts. But then I had to make this terrible decision about, you know, having said, well, this project is not really doing what it claims it's doing. When I went back to the UK, they said to me, "Okay, Emma, so do you want to stop the project? How could I say stop it? I mean, these people were getting some kind of funding, even if there was a sort of complete mismatch between all the different agencies doing different things. But nonetheless, people were benefiting, not not in the way that was claimed on the paperwork. So I couldn't say stop it. I said, no, carry on. But you just need to be much, much better at responding to what these women groups say they want and finding a way you know to for example give them give them credit but I think that story shows how these things do carry on because you develop this loyalty um to the to the people you get to know and it's very difficult to be very cold and you know hard-hearted um and say no stop that project and do a different project with people who would be strangers to me over in another part of Kenya. So it's the story of how, how it all kind of carries on um, without people exactly being wicked, but but also not being very strategic and not being very honest sometimes about what they're up to. It's a lack of empathy, yeah. really, isn't it? A lack of listening and 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 designing things that actually match match uh, people's needs. Not only, it's also the funders. So you get these big grants from British government, from foundations to do x y and z before you've had a chance to listen to people properly so it is also the way the whole aid industry is constructed 
so that the decisions are made in places like, you know, UK, Washington, whatever. Um, and, you know, without real de decentralization of, of decision making, but also going back to what you were saying, Tosin, it's also about a lack of respect for the knowledge of people at a really decentralized level. And it happens within countries too, doesn't it? It happens within the UK that we don't have proper decentralization of decision making. It's really difficult to change it though, isn't it? I think it's deeply ingrained in the UK, a, a, an extremely strong sense of sort of mechanised bureaucracy, doing things to people not which aren't the things they want or need, and they're not done in a way that's helpful. So, so it's it's quite a deep, um, a deep uh, crisis, I think. Hey, I, I I see it as the white saviour syndrome. Um, it's they yeah, you just know better. You just know what's right for people uh, because you're a saviour. Well, exactly. But then what then what do you do? So what happened to me next is I I became close colleagues and actually started having a relationship with this 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 colleague in, in Kenya. Um, and um, and I said to him, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to leave. I'm going to go and work in the UK as a community worker and recognize the problems in my own country. And, you know, this is hopeless. And he said, well, it, what? no. <laughs> don't do that. We need you to stay and to influence the donors to work differently. So that's my excuse for sticking with it for, for a while. But sadly, I, I can't claim that I really changed things. Yeah, I think we should take a break. I think we should take a deep breath and, and listen to the loving kindness of Mr. Stevie Wonder. Isn't she lovely? Great. Your Can first I... choice, um, any particular reason? Yes. When I was a child, I passionately wanted two things. I wanted to have children. And this, this song is about his daughter. Yes. And the other thing I wanted was to be independent and uh, to have a, a really good career. So I remember very clear, clearly wanting both. And I, I have had a career and I've got two daughters Aww. who are more wonderful, uh, good company and fabulous than any other people in the world. So this I, is really about my two daughters. I, I, I think all three of us can sign up to that sentiment. So let's hear the, the sound of the running bathwater in Isn't She Lovely? <laughs>
Emma, tell us about your work now in, in Ethiopia. We managed to get large amounts of money uh, for the national NGOs in Ethiopia to do what they wanted. And because that inevitably changes over time, so when they got consulting with the children, with parents, teachers, etc., then then the projects would change. So to give you an example, we had one amazing project, which was about trying to stop migration of, of children from the rural areas in Amhara fleeing to the cities, because it's really dangerous to migrate as a, as a child, particularly as a girl. You often get tangled up with sexual exploitation and various other kinds of abuse. So we, we, we started off supporting this national NGO so that the foreigners weren't really doing anything. We would just visit occasionally and, and advise and, and consult and monitor. But um, it was very much the national NGO who was deciding what to do. And they realised over time that actually stopping migration or, or returning children to their families can actually be really dangerous because there are sometimes not any problems with poverty, but abuse in families. So they actually cha- completely changed the programme over time to stopping risky migration and trying to improve the sort of route along the way, but not automatically reconciling people to their families if it was dangerous. And one of the most exciting encounters I remember was in this town in in Amhara, where we went to talk to the police and the NGO had persuaded these police to stop thinking of themselves entirely as law enforcement officers and to think of themselves as child protection officers. And and they created a whole sort of unit outside the police station, which was less intimidating, for children who had migrated. Um, And the the police sort of bargained with the bar owners that if anybody came into the bars looking for work and they were younger than than 18, then they should contact these child protection officers. And um, they, they would take the children in, they would find a safe place for them. They would try and find out whether it was safe for them to go back home. If not, then they would find an, an alternative place for them, fostering or adoption or, or whatever. And it was that was exciting because it wasn't just the rigid plan that our colleagues had to stick to because we went back to the donor and said, actually, sorry, this whole programme's got to change because we've realised all sorts of things about the patterns of migration, having talked to children about how it needs to adjust. So that's how I first got involved with Ethiopia. But things got politically really difficult. And I thought, actually, development workers are often um, sort of screening themselves off from the politics. Why don't we make more connection between people who are working in development and people who are working in politics? And I had, meantime, done some ethnographic studies myself in Westminster. So I'd done a study of the House of Lords and I was planning to do one of the House of Commons. And after I did the study of the House of Commons about 10 years later, I then got some funding for Ethiopians to study the politics of Ethiopia, by which time it had got really, really quite tense. And there was a much, much more fraught relationship between the government and civil society. And then finally, very recently, in fact, we just closed a programme, which was about four years long, where we became a grant maker. So all the problems I was talking about earlier that mean that grant makers are very rigid, we could just completely change that. So we, we offered grants to Ethiopian scholars and said, you do your own work. You do um, 
research on the relationship between politicians and citizens. And our only condition is you have to either have an arts or humanities discipline in there, or you have to work with a creative industry. So that's why it got really cultural. Okay. So for the first time, political scientists, anthropologists, policy studies people were working with filmmakers, painters, cartoonists, and finding that you can express things about delicate political issues in film or in paintings in a way that is both more expansive, kind of really taps into people's imagination, but is also sometimes less unsafe, less threatening to the politicians. I mean, there's an incredibly strong tradition in each state of Ethiopia uh, for dance and music and theatre. And satire. Uh, and satire. I mean, theater, the, the, the political satire in theatre is just fantastic. And some of it is is traditional, but there, but then... Also, there's also all kinds of new traditions which are endlessly being created in, in Ethiopia. And of course, the digital world uh, means that there's, there's an, uh, just an explosion of fascinating use of symbols and visual imagery and both really exciting. But then, of course, at the moment, because of the conflict in Ethiopia, it is also very, very troubling the way in which people people's creativity can be used in a way that exacerbates the yeah, conflict yeah, between yeah, different groups. Yeah. So, so which, which universities were you working with and, and what sort of outputs came from these uh, grants direct to Ethiopian scholars, which, which required arts or humanities or creativity as, as, as part of the mix? We, we were really determined not to just stick to Addis right. and Michele, which are two, the two sort of really elite universities, because our view was actually there's talent everywhere and anywhere you find humans. I mean, talent is evenly distributed across the world. So there's less experience in some of what are called the emerging universities in the emerging states. Um, there's less experience in fundraising and putting together a proposal and research design um, on the one hand. But on the other hand, we thought, well, we worked with a fantastic organisation called Forum for Social Studies. So, so they really were the ones who ran workshops across the universities in almost every state, bar one, I think, um, and taught people about research design and how to put together proposals. So we, we got proposals from the whole of the country, which is quite an achievement because it's quite difficult. You know, it's such a vast country. Um, but we, we did have a concern after some months that most of the applications we were getting were from men. And there are very few, very senior women academics. So we thought, right, we've really got to take some proactive action. So we, we then teamed up with a feminist movement called Setuit. And they then ran a whole series of other workshops and coaching and mentoring for women scholars to make sure that they got an opportunity to apply. It was entirely meritocratic, so we were we were we we were very careful to make sure that any grant chosen uh, was chosen on merit. But what was interesting is we gave fifty grants, um, and forty six were led by um, either scholars in Myanmar or Ethiopia. We worked in those two countries, and four I think were given uh, to either UK or European 
principal investigators. But of them, at least two of them were diaspora. And that was all completely competitive. And it was interesting because the UK scholars kind of couldn't really compete with the depth of knowledge that, for example, the Ethiopian scholars had of Ethiopian politics. Mm. Um, but also, of course, they were incredibly good value because they didn't charge the, the ridiculous daily rates of someone like me. Mm. So, so that was quite gratifying. We were forced by the donor to allow um, UK scholars to apply, despite the fact that we wanted to prove that scholars in Ethiopia could do amazing work. But, but as I say, only four out of, out of 50 in the UK and other European countries won. And what did they produce? Um, well, we've got this website, which is www.grnpp.org. And um, in the library, there is an incredible treasure trove of books, journal articles, films, policy briefs um, that kind of speak for themselves. So it's easy for me to say they are um, astounding quality, but um, people, please do go and have a look because it, people can see for themselves. They're not necessarily, um, you know, as densely referenced as some journal articles that you might find in the kind of highest impact journals because people don't have the same access to journals um, when they're sitting in a remote university but in terms of the ideas they are they're fantastic I mean there was a film about democracy which was all about how democracy starts in the family and if you think about the tensions that go on between generations, between siblings, between parents, et cetera, within a family and how they navigate or don't navigate them peacefully and how they can descend into rows. And then you get other people involved trying to mediate. It was a beautiful kind of metaphor for, for politics at the national level. Um, and it was really, really innovative. So in the sense of ideas and knowledge and you know, really amazing insights into politics, then the outputs are fabulous. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, what you're saying is um, very reflective uh, when we think about sort of like, I think of politics in somewhere like Nigeria, where people are always so interested in the strong man and they really look up to, because that's often the structure within sort of families that are, uh, uh, a head who knows and who directs uh, and negotiating is almost seen as weakness. Um, democracy in its own, it's a, it's a, it's a unique or, or have an individual translation of democracy, I think, partic- peculiar to particular countries. Absolutely. So- Absolutely um, agree, Tosin. And actually, I think different kinds of masculinity found in different parts of the world is a really understudied aspect of understanding politics. At the risk of being unduly assertive, I'm going to say, listen, I'm looking at grnpp.org. There's lots of good resources there, and I'm going to really look forward to exploring that. I'm going to suggest we go to our next track, track two, which is just a beautiful solo piano piece. Is it Segway Mariam Gubru, Homeless Warrior? Exactly. This was actually a track that a colleague at SOAS, Chris Kramer, told me about. So Chris, <laughs> Chris told me about this amazing woman who's a nun who was offered a... So she's, 
she lives up a hillside in Ethiopia. She was offered a place at the British Academy of Music and turned it down right. because she wanted to stick to being a nun. And she's she's trained in, in Western classical music. But the reason why I think this piece is so amazing is, is the sort of fusion between Western classical music, Ethiopian jazz, and her own thing. So it's just unlike any music I've, I've heard before. It's lovely. interested in the contradiction between the way people talk about their work and um, what really goes on in practice. So I got really interested in the difference between aid workers, um, particularly, I suppose, the ones that I identify with, i.e. British, not only white, but British aid workers involved in it in INGOs um, going to other countries, claiming that what they're doing is this kind of social work of helping the poor and how actually it's really, a, as you say, a deeply political process where they're getting involved with, you know, sort of what Foucault calls governmentality or whatever, basically sort of the administration and... Um, political struggles in other places but they kind of pretend they're not so it's all presented as if it's technical work or it's 
technology or its social work or whatever. But what a contrast with what politicians in any country um, sort of claim that they're doing. So politicians often hype up the antagonism between political parties, for example. So in, in the UK, you know, when they're doing things like Prime Minister's Question Time, that really gladiatorial event on Wednesdays where the, the, the two main party leaders shout at each other and then everybody else pitches in. And there's a sort of, there's a performance of politics as if it's, you know, they even call it highly tribal and all this kind of thing. But actually behind the scenes, politics in Westminster is really, really cooperative. You know, mm. so they're often helping each other. They're sort of doing deals about, you know, you support my amendment and then I'll support yours. And, you know, and they and they make friendships. So mm. to understand how politics works in parliaments and other political institutions, you have to look at the social life. Mm. Um, and actually, politicians are not nearly as bad as you think they are behind the scenes. And development workers are much worse, in my experience. So you're a specialist oh. in, tr- in truth in politics, aren't you? Yeah, that's really alarming. <laughs> well, I suppose, like lots of people, yes, I am. I'm interested in truth. I'm also interested in hypocrisy, I guess. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it, it's very galling um, to hear the way that, particularly, people talk in charities. And you know, sometimes when you're fundraising for charities, um, you know, charity workers kind of hype up all the good news and the good stories and whatever, and cover over the the harm they cause um so yes I'm, I'm definitely interested in sort of trying to gently coax people to be a bit more honest about what they're really doing we a previous guest on this program was jacob reese mogg and tozin and i thought long and hard about about how to how to speak with him he, he was very you know well researched and knowledgeable he'd read highly slicey speeches and spoke highly of highly slicey we, we had to put in some sort of question which uh, was not sort of to antagonise him, but just to sort of open things up. So we asked him whether he could, whether he admired any particularly truthful politicians. <laughs> and there was a bit of a pause, but he did end up sort of saying that he felt that Boris Johnson sort of did use the truth in, in a certain sort of way <laughs> to make his points. It's, I mean, truth's in short supply, isn't it? It is. I think part of the reason for that is that politics has become a sort of form of entertainment. and. Um, I've been puzzling over why people believe such extraordinary stories like QAnon. And and I think it's partly that people aren't so worried, actually, about whether things are true. They they really want a good story. They want entertainment. I mean, it's not a coincidence, is it? We've got, you know, a a reality TV star uh, Mm -hmm. until recently in the US. And what's interesting about Boris is that he entertains. So... um, I think it's even more worrying um, that his relationship with the truth is rather wobbly, but even more worrying in a way is that people don't seem to mind that much about that. So it's that he gets away with it. So he, you know, he's broken the law. He's broken all kinds of rules in Parliament. Um, He he doesn't seem to tell us, uh, he tells us things which which turn out to be untrue, but then he doesn't apologise or retract. So it's it's the fact that, we are all letting him get away with it, which worries me more um, than one individual with a really very bizarre relationship with the truth. 
So, yeah. Horrible, isn't it? Let's talk about something much nicer. Emma, you've got a very sort of special connection, haven't you, with, with his Imperial Majesty and with, with the background of Fairfield House. Do you, do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I discovered um, that my... I knew my father was born in Addis Ababa in 1922. And the reason for that was that his father was a diplomat. And um, so I, I discovered that he was stationed in Harar, um, in the in the 1920s and before, actually, um, and I went there once for for a few days with my husband, and we went to try and find out where the British consulate was. We had the most incredible weekend, going up to people when they were standing in their doorways in a lovely old house and saying, "Oh, do you know where the British consulate was?" Um, and they'd say. No, haven't a clue. No, this house has been owned. And they start to tell us all these stories about their houses and say, oh, come in for a cup of coffee. And we just had the most intensely wonderful kind of social life for a whole weekend trying to find the, the British consulate. And then we gave up and I went to a museum, which was the Rambo Museum after that French explorer. And I, I started telling the curator of that museum about how I was searching for the British consulate. And to my amazement, he said, oh, I know exactly where it was. Here, let me show you on the map. Not only do I know where it was, but I'm getting the money from the French government to rebuild the French and the British consulates. So wow. I'm going to go back and see whether or not he's he's done this. Um, but um, so w- what I know was that he was he was stationed there. And because he was a diplomat, he got to know um, Haile Selassie. Uh, when he was um, governor. So this is your granddad, who was the consul, knew his imperial majesty when he was governor of Harar in the very early days. This would be the 1920s, would it? Yes. Yes. Wow. And so they got to know each other uh, sort of diplomatically, but then they became very friendly um, and had huge respect for each other. And um, he, he, Haile Selassie gave my father two beautiful cloaks uh, when he was a baby because he was uh, his godson and we used to play with these cloaks as children Um, so I think it was probably the cloaks actually which kind of sowed a seed in my mind that Ethiopia was this extraordinary place and I still do think it's the most extraordinary country I've ever been to partly because I'm enraptured with the way that Everything is different there. As you know, you've got your own time system, your own calendar. The food is completely different from any other country. People talk in a different way. I just love not really knowing what's going on um, and feeling like you only have to sort of talk to someone or walk into a new village or a new shop or anywhere and you're going to learn something amazing. Well, you brought those two cloaks to Fairfield House and they are really beautiful, beautifully worked, aren't they? Is it, I think um, it was thought they might be the work of Armenian craftsmen. Yeah, definitely. The embroidery apparently is uniquely Armenian and they, they are really beautiful. I like to think they were worn by Haile Selassie maybe um, because I, I don't think he would have given them um, to be worn by my father, I assume. So I, I think he probably warned them. And we have, we've treasured them ever since. So Bath, you probably know, it has a fashion museum 
which is about to have to sort of relocate and replan itself. We want to make the case that His Imperial Majesty, you know, who was nominated best dressed monarch more than more than once, and um, had the, famously the most bemedalled chest of uh, of anybody in history. We'd like to think there's a little slot in the new fashion museum for uh, His Imperial Majesty as fashion icon. I'm, I'm particularly thinking of your cloaks when we think of that. Well, that would be fabulous. I mean, we I have two siblings, Belle and Peregrine, and we would really love it if they were seen by other people. So, so that would be fabulous if it if it would be possible to place them somewhere um, with a bit of the story and and so they could be seen by others. Along with we've got fabulous photographs, letters, um, medals, and yes, it it, it would really be gorgeous to think of other people enjoying these things. Well, we saw the effect that they had on on some of the people who who came to the house at the time. It was very very strong, wasn't it? I and mean, people were very very moved to see them and and uh, you know, and to hear about the history. It's, it's the most extraordinary connection and, and coincidence, and we're really delighted you got in touch. Well, sitting in in Fairfield House with with the cloaks and and as you say, watching people's reaction, but also just enjoying this extraordinary sense of of community in Fairfield House was very moving. I must say, I really really fell for the place. I don't know if it's because I'm sort of so in love with Ethiopia that I, you know, it's like falling in love with a tiny little bit of Ethiopia. But it is rare, sadly, isn't it, in, in the UK to find yourself in a space where there's such a sort of deep affection um, between people. Um, and so it's a, it was a very, very special place to walk into. I have to confess that the cloaks played a rather small part in it for me. For me, it was just lovely meeting such such warmth in people um, and such a strong sense of community. It's a very, very special place, Fairfield House. We quickly came to the view that the main importance and value of His Majesty's legacy was intangible. So I think we think the same as you, what you think. We think the, the idea of different communities working together to fulfil his wish of Fairfield as a home for the aged, that's much more resonant and much more important than the building itself. And similarly, I think the cloaks are a beautiful introduction and they're very beautiful items, but it's not it's not artifacts that make Fairfield House what it is. Let's listen to uh, uh, the third and final track you've chosen and then let's talk more about um, Fairfield House because I think as a, as a political ethnographer, your take on it is going to be particularly interesting because it's some of the most complicated community interactions that I've ever encountered certainly listen your, your third track is, is teddy afro which is um a big favorite i'm not sure which track it is but you'll tell us it's called highly selassie oh there we go Oh, 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 
So that was Haile Selassie by Teddy Afric. Thank you, Emma, for that choice. With the specialty, with the view, the lens you've got, you're, you're, you're an ethnographer, you've done, you've done development work abroad, you're particularly interested in, in politics. I'd, I'd be interested just to hear how, how, how Fairfield House struck you and to develop that thought a little bit. I'm fascinated to get into history through individual characters um people of, of who have um a tremendous significance like Haile Selassie is so huge historically um but 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 also to get from those that that character into understanding really important significant um developments for whole nations so in a way, for me, Fairford, Fairfield House is like a sort of window um, onto extraordinary things that were happening in, in various periods of history, which, of course, the beauty of the house is that you go around the house and you learn um, about what was happening in Ethiopia and then why uh, Haile Selassie became exiled and what was going on between you know, really, you know, sort of conflict between nations and the whole world. So you, you go from one very special person uh, to localities, to nations, to the whole world. So it, it's a it's a place which, for me, um, allows you to get into incredibly complex history without being totally overwhelmed. Um, and I think. I think people get involved uh, in inquiring into their own families, partly for this reason, because it's not only about one's own family. It's about understanding the past in a way that's sort of intelligible and one and resonates and is kind of almost manageable because history can be so overwhelming. Um, So uh, you went on Ras Benji's tour of the house, did you? Yes. Yes. I actually did two tours. I love doing several tours because I like um, seeing whether or not you get completely different stories. Um, and actually, we had two different people giving tours. I think Benji did the first one. And actually, they were amazingly consistent. That's <laughs> good. I couldn't find any contradictions, which you would find if you went on the tour in Westminster, for example. I, I must say, we have had fanciful different accounts of what goes on. I think there's a there's a sense that His Imperial Majesty generates myth wherever he goes, as well as, as, well as a, a lot of historical reality and fact. 
Yeah, which is fine. I mean, I, I adore good stories. So, you know, actually going around uh, Fairfield House was lovely because um, Benji kind of explained, you know, what was history, what was really as reliable as it can be kind of history. You know, this is what we're really sure did happen. But then what I loved was that he then did also tell us some of the stories which are harder to be to be absolutely sure about. And I love that. I love that approach to history. Yes, let's have some of these crazy stories as well. Um, or stories that have yet to be proved or so I mean just that you have you have a, a, as, as I say a sort of window into the most amazing stories in that house I think that's what's special about it for me. Well I was just going to say that um, uh, the stories that are told are really much more about the people who tell them or the people who sort of rather than even more than even the character involved um, so, you know, those big, big stories about him, I, I think, correspond to the need to make him, you know, godlike uh, and confirm his um, celestial um, abilities or, 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 or transformation, I think. That's a really good point, Tosin, and you're making me think that that really what is special about the house is that it's so full of people and therefore life um, who are yeah. interested in those stories. So in a way, it would be nothing if it was just a sort of museum-like place where, you know, there were a few, very few characters who were interested. No, it's not like that at all. It's, I mean, it's a place with this, you know, history of, of some decades, if I'm right, of um, older people using it um, and I feel very, very strongly that that societies need to find a way of um, creating spaces for older people um, so that they can still feel really, really connected to society and to interesting spaces and that kind of thing. So for me, actually, that's also another reason why it's a really special house, that it's 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 got the presence of people who are being valued in a way that's not always true, sadly. So I do think. In, in, the, in places like the UK, we treat older people abysmally. And the worst aspect of that is isolation. And, and the, in a way, the Fairfield House kind of represents for me the opposite of isolation. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I, I, I also really like the fact that, you know, for the Rastafarian community, it is this, it's a temple, isn't it? It's for them, it's a place of worship. So it's really quite interesting to have so many different uses and perceptions of the same place, as you uh, so rightly pointed out about many of the places that you've visited as well. Yes, exactly. And it's, and it's interesting because it, it requires me to try and understand. I don't fully understand yet. I'm just looking forward to, to visiting um, more, but I'm aware of the fact that I need to be respectful towards um, a sort of tradition that I don't fully understand. And I really look forward to, to learning more about it. But I, I just got this sense of people being very patient about that, actually, um, because it's, it's always interesting having an encounter with people who feel, you know, very strongly, as you say, about uh, relationships, including with the divine aspect um, of the world, 
um, that, you know, when, when you don't understand that, it's so important, isn't it, to treat it respectfully, but without being phony and pretending that you're in complete agreement necessarily uh, with everything. Because if you haven't been socialised into that, you haven't been brought up into that, or you haven't you know, developed that, that relationship yet, maybe I will, um, then, you know, you need to handle that with sensitivity. I think it, it's a community endeavour. And it has to move at its own community pace. And that does teach patience, most certainly. And people do have different perspectives and insights because they're different faiths and cultures. And you're absolutely right. You have to sort of, you have to, you, you can learn a huge amount of that and go with it, but you have to remain true to your own uh, experiences and, and, and insights and, and, and faith. I think it's going to be a, a sort of perennially interesting journey with constant stimulating challenges. Emma, how, I mean, how, we'd love to do more um, things with SOAS. We'd love to, to see much more of you and do more with you. How do you sort of see, see the future of um, your relationship with Fairfield House? My immediate reaction to that is I wouldn't dream of deciding that on my own. Ah. And I would. <laughs> She's an ethnographer. <laughs> I am an ethnographer, but also I think the older I get, the less I feel like kind of making pronouncements upon what's best. Even you know, even for myself, I mean, I would, I don't do anything without consulting my daughters. You yeah. know? Well, I think if if, I, if if you spent time with Fairfield House, or if if say we embarked on projects together, then I think then I think things would would become sort of clearer. But I mean, some people say I'm just off to you know, work abroad for the next six months or I'm not interested or I haven't got time. I mean, the, the sense that I get is that you feel this particular narrative, this story of this one remarkable individual is very special and that there aren't many as important as this in, in our part of the world. Exactly. But, but I, I mean, really seriously, I'm not being evasive at all. I mean that what I would love is to have more conversations mm. about, for example, whether... Um, I, I live not that far away, 40 minutes or whatever from, from Fairfield House. And, you know, whether or not I could make a contribution, I would much rather get into conversations with people about how I might be able to contribute. And I, I'm not a great one for endless waffly conversations about things. Um, what I believe is that if you develop good relationships with people, you can actually be quite efficient, but you but you mustn't sort of close down that the space for those conversations because you don't develop good relationships without without talking to each other understanding um you know who who's good at what where the knowledge lies um and and sort of making creativity possible so in short what i'm saying is i would love to 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 visit in a way is what one does to to someone like fairfield house and keep talking to people and finding out whether or not there's anything i could um contribute well, we, we reopen the, the guided tours from April, but you've been on one of those. I, I think slight plug for Imperial Voice Radio. I, I, I found, I think, Tosin, maybe you found as well, that slightly to our surprise, the discipline of putting in place conversations with people who might have an interest in Fairfield House, it just takes you to very interesting and surprising places. It happens over and over again. I would love, if possible, to put you in touch with fascinating Ethiopian scholars and artists and filmmakers who would really enjoy talking to you on Imperial Radio, if that might be possible. How much would we love that, Tosin? Oh, absolutely. Yes, please. That would be absolutely great.
And, and I imagine a number of them have, have, have got, I mean, what, what they worked on would work well on radio if it's kind of song, uh, music, poetry. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of, um, I, a lot, I find a lot of my experiences in Ethiopia are with people who are really, really good conversationalists. It's one of the aspects of um, visiting Ethiopia, isn't it? That you have really good conversations with people. So some of it would be conversation. Some of it, um, as you say, might be um, playing snippets of film or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I think you're completely right to say that you don't know exactly what the future would hold in that respect, working with a complex community. But I can see all sorts of exciting possibilities. We'd love to see you again at the house. Tozin and I would love to follow up those introductions that, 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 that you offered there. And, and let's find a way to let more people see and enjoy that remarkable collection of artifacts that, that you've got from, from, your, from your grandfather, from your father, who is his Imperial Majesty's godson. Yes, well, thank you so much. This was a lovely conversation. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you both. So you've been listening to Imperial Voice. This has been In Our City. Our guest today has been Professor Emma Crewe, anthropologist, ethnographer, mother, lover of Ethiopia and a really insightful new friend of Fairfield House. Emma, it's been a delight and you're, you're so welcome. We've loved having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, William and Tosin. Thank you so much. I'm William Heath. And I'm Tosin Uniliri. And stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Mm -hmm.